Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Welcome to the Calvary Worship Center podcast from Colorado Springs With a message titled, The Grapes of Wrath We know we're in for a ride in our review of the book of Revelation Today we're in chapter 14 as we roll past the fall of Babylon Angels flying about, the mark of the beast, and the Lamb of God himself standing on Mount Zion Wow those are only the highlights. Buckle up, folks, as Pastor Al Pittman unleashes a passionate message that will rivet and challenge you. We post these messages each week so you can keep up to date with the pulpit teachings from our church on the Front Range of Colorado. You're in for the full treatment with a strong message from the Bible's final book. Pastor Al will take us through each exciting chapter, and now we turn to Revelation 14 with the message titled, The Grapes of Wrath. Let's get rolling with Pastor Al. Today we are in Revelation chapter 14. Hopefully you have your place there. This is a Bible study as we go through the Bible and see what the word of the Lord says about the end times, about this time just before Christ returns to the earth. A seven-year tribulation period, and we're looking here in our text at the latter part of that seven-year tribulation period, the Second half of the three and a half years, a time of great tribulation. It's all tribulation, but here we have great tribulation. I've entitled this message, The Grapes of Wrath. In chapter 13, we saw the last week, the ungodly trinity. We saw the devil, the dragon, the antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, the lamb, the Bible says, with the two horns. And yet, despite the darkness of chapter 13, we come to chapter 14 and we see the light of God's just judgment that overcomes and prevails against this satanic trinity that we saw in Revelation chapter 13. We begin here at verse 1, Revelation chapter 14, reading to verse 5. If you will read along with me, please. Verse 1, Revelation chapter 14, John writes, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and elders. That is, we saw earlier in Revelation that are before the throne of God. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from, many, from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Amen. Jesus is seen here standing on Mount Zion. Standing on Mount Zion, the lamb standing there as a symbol of our victory in Christ. He stands there as the, on the very mount, Jerusalem, 
the, the city of David and all is considered Mount Zion. He's standing on the very mount where he purchased our salvation, where he fortified our salvation. In fact, Zion literally, literally means fortification or sunny mountain. Jesus on Mount Calvary in, on Mount Zion, it was our Symbol, if you will, or sim- is, is the one who paid the price for our sins and stands symbolically here as our deliverer, our fortification, our salvation. He stands with 144,000. Uh, these are the 144,000 that are mentioned also in Revelation chapter 7. Remember them, the 144,000, not Jehovah Witnesses, amen. But 144,000 from the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that God will select. They bear the mark of their God. They bear the mark of the Father of Jesus Christ. They bear the mark of his name on their foreheads. As we saw in Revelation chapter 7, that name is Yahweh. That is written upon their heads, the name of God. And they bear that mark rather than the mark of the Antichrist. God selects them to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel during this great tribulation period uh, in the last days just before the second advent of Jesus Christ to the earth. John says, along with this 144,000, I also heard a voice. The voice that he hears here is the very voice of God. And he hears harps playing uh, as well. And a new song being sang by uh, this group, uh, the harps in scripture often represent joy. And of course, he hears the voice of God and they're like sounding like thunder. And then these harps are playing a song, a new song is being sung. It is a song of joy being sung by the 144,000. They are the first fruits, the Bible tells us. They are the first fruits of, of, uh, of, of the Lord. First fruits in what sense? First fruits of an earthly people who will inhabit the earth. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, many of you will, re- will recall, Jesus said that the, the, uh, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. They are the first fruits of those who will inherit the earth, and especially as it relates to the tribe of Israel, as it relates to Israel. That's what he means here by them being the first fruits. But as I look at this 144,000 Jews that are, are marked by God for his divine purpose during the tribulation period to take the gospel throughout the world, I'm reminded of the very fact that they were separated and, of course, uh, sanctified for God's purpose. But in reality, all of us as believers are called to be sanctified and separated for the purpose of God. I know sometimes we think that it's my life. It's my thing. I can do what I want to do. Amen. Nobody can tell me who to sock it to. You got to be in the 60s to remember that song. Amen. And, you know, but it's, it is, you know, it's not your life. We are bought, again, at a price, the Bible tells us. And so we are, we are sanctified, set apart is a great word. Sanctified it simply means to be set apart for the glory of God and for his divine purpose. And how are we set apart from the world? We're set apart by the truth of God. The truth of God is what sets us free. The reason I say that, it sets us free, but it also sets us apart uh, from the world. And the reason I say that is because of what Jesus said in John 17. He said, Father, he's praying to the Father. He says, sanctify them, speaking of the disciples, by your truth, your word is truth. The difference between us and the world ought to be is that we live by the truth of God's word and not by our feelings. 
faith in God's word, not according to our feelings uh, in, in the world. And so these 144,000, the Bible says, because they walk by truth, set apart, sanctified under God, they, wherever Jesus went, that's where they went. Wherever he goes, that's where they went. They were followers of Jesus Christ. It's impossible for us to follow the Lord unless we are following according to the truth of his word. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit, when he comes in John chapter 16, he says, when he comes, the spirit of truth, that when he comes, that he will guide you into all truth. Do you believe that? That God guides us into all truth? Listen, all truth about your marriage, all truth about your spouse. If guys, this is an all truth, then why are we living a lie? If you guys, this is an all truth about my education, all truth about my, my friends, all truth about my boyfriend, all truth about my girlfriend. God, the Holy Spirit is there to guide me. You know, we don't want to ask the Holy Spirit about stuff because you know he'll tell you the truth. Amen. He will guide us. If we will listen, he will guide us into all truth. And we are to live by truth. Now, this is a really important point, I think, for us today because we live in a, a culture today, in a world today, whereby people live by sort of a predisposition, a predisposed ideology or feelings as it relates to society. We just saw a classic example of that this past week with Jussie Smollett. Uh, the actor who fabricated a story that he was attacked by men wearing a MAGA hat and they were calling him racist names and, and, and all of this. A story totally fabricated and people jumped on it and they go, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe, oh, the MAGA hat, you know. We're all pre-programmed, like pre have a predisposition that anybody, listen, that has a MAGA hat is a racist. We have this predisposition. I know it's getting quiet in here because people think this way, even in the church. And we ought to be ashamed of ourselves for thinking that way. It's a predisposition of the world. And so because we have this predisposition, automatically this is a racist attack. And everybody's in arms, probably planning marches and everything else. Come to find out the dude was lying. We cannot live by our predisposition, that the predisposition of the world. We cannot live according to what triggers the world. One lady said, oh, when I see one of those hats, I'm triggered. Now, she's probably not a believer. That's fine. But when it happens in the church, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. What triggers you ought to be the truth of God. That's what we live by. We live by his truth. If you're triggered by the color of somebody's skin or the way somebody looks or whatever, or the hat they're wearing, something's wrong with your theology. We're not to be living by triggers, but by truth. Amen. The truth of God's word. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves of bringing those lies into the house of God. God's truth is the path to our ongoing sanctification. The Bible says, Jesus said, that those who are being sanctified, that means that you haven't arrived. Amen. I know you thought you had arrived. You're going to try to straighten me out after the service. But let me, I got news for you. You haven't arrived either. You ain't all that. And I'm not all that. Paul said he wasn't all that. He said, I have not arrived, but I press on. He is still, we are still in the sanctification process. 
God is still working on us, teaching us how to love people that don't look like us. Amen. This, I'm talking about the kingdom. Now, the world can do what the world wants to do, but we shouldn't be bringing that spirit and that ideology and that predisposition attitude within the church of God into our relationships. Now, these 144,000, the Bible says that they were also virgins. They were virgins physically and they were virgins spiritually. I say physically, they did, did not defile themselves with a woman. They had not known a woman. And they were virgins spiritually because... There was no deceit in them and no fault, the Bible says in verse 5. Now, many of us do not qualify to be physical virgins, but God calls all of us to be spiritual virgins. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, not a husband and then a lover on the side, one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, but, he, but, he, but I fear, rather, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your mind may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He said, I have betrothed you. I have given you. The Bible says the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. We're betrothed. We're engaged to Jesus. Did you know that? And you know who the, Paul says, I want to present you, but you know who the best man is? The best man to the bride is the Holy Spirit. In Jewish tradition, when a woman was engaged, she could be engaged for a whole year. It was the best man's job to make sure all the wolves, you know, were beaten off when they come sniffing around. The best man's job was to present the bride at the wedding, a chaste virgin who has not been contaminated by these guys who've been chasing her. That's the best, the best man job. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, will present you, the bride of Christ, blameless, faultless, and with exceeding joy before the presence of God. Amen. He is keeping us that he may present us before the Father. We belong to him. And so we are to be virgins in the sense that we are, the Holy Spirit is there to guard our minds, our spirits from an attitude, from the world's attitude, so that we're not contaminated by the world. That's what I mean by being spiritual virgins. We're not contaminated by this world. Oh, I'm following Jesus, but I got a lover on the side. We have to repent of that. Paul said, I've betrothed you to one husband. In verses 6 to 18, as we continue through our study here, we find several proclamations, and we find six angels involved in these proclamations. I counted them. (laughs) Six. The first proclamation that we find here has to do with the gospel. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice that God, fear, loud voice, fear God rather, and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Wow. This is sort of a last call. Amen. Not for alcohol. Amen. This is a last call to the earth to repent, to the inhabitants of the earth. And it is also the fulfillment of what Jesus said. Matthew 24, Jesus said that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. We're reading about it right here. We're talking the end coming. 
This angel is making his proclamation. Now, yes, the church is to go out. We are to obey the great commission and take the gospel to all the world. But here is like a last ditch effort by God, giving the world one more chance to come to repent. For the Bible says God wishes that none should perish. Amen. But that all should come to repentance. God's not mad at you. God doesn't hate you. He hasn't labeled you for hell. But he calls you to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants you to come to him. And he calls this angel proclaiming this gospel is calling the people to worship the creator rather than the creation. One of the signs in scripture in in Romans chapter one that speak to man's depravity is the fact that man begins to worship the creation rather than the creator. Paul said those who have rebelled against God, speaking of those who rebelled against God, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. We see that happening today in our culture, in our society, where indeed we have elevated, it seems, the creation above the creator. We worship the environment. We worship the animals and all of this. And we see that being demonstrated many times, you know, and, and, and listen, let me just say this, that the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 12, that the righteous takes care of their animals. God placed Adam in the garden and then God said, now tend the garden, take care of it. We are to take care of the earth. I'm an environmentalist. You take care of the earth. Amen. God calls us to do that, to take care of our animals and all of that. But when we begin to elevate the, the creation and the animals above humanity, there's a problem. Jesus didn't even do that. Remember Jesus said that, you know, there's not a sparrow that falls out of the sky that God doesn't notice that it's fallen. He said, are you not worth more than many sparrows? Answer, yes. If an oxen falls into a ditch, you know, you, anybody would get their oxen out. They don't want to die there. But aren't you worth more than, than the oxen to God? Of course. But what we've done is we've exalted the creative things. Case in point. You sit there and you watch these TV commercials on television and my heart breaks when I see the people, how they mistreat these puppies, these dogs and these puppy farms and they're starving to death and they're shaking in the cold and, you know, they're asking for funds to help, you know, save these dogs and all. And you know what? I'm moved by that. It's like, man, you got to lock people up who treat animals that way. But when it comes to those in our country who are advocating the late birth of a baby, leaving it on the table and walking away from it. Not a tear is shed. Because we have elevated the creation above the creator. And so no, no, no news flash, no peep, no, no commercial about saving the babies. But commercial about saving the dogs and cats. Now I mentioned something like this some years ago and I got in trouble for it. A lady wrote me a nasty email. You're the worst person I can't believe. All life is precious. And I said, this wasn't saying all life wasn't precious. But I was stating a case where about down in Pueblo, some man had abused his cat. And they, they rescued this cat from this guy who was a complete jerk. And they saved the cat's life. And I was just making a point that, you know what? People down here trying to rescue this cat, but no one's rescuing babies. I was just making the point. And she got mad about that. When saying the cat's life wasn't worth anything, I'm just saying the life of a human being, a soul made in the image of God is greater than any animal or any plant life. Amen. 
They are worshiping the creation rather than the creator because they think they are God. The angel says, worship the one who has created these things. The heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Notice the nature of the gospel is mentioned here as well because the gospel also accurately diagnoses the state of mankind and the angel declares the hour of judgment has come. And we need to understand that the hour of judgment has come. Now, of course, he's speaking in context here the fact that Jesus is getting ready to step on the earth. And we will see that in John, I mean, Revelation chapter 19. So the gospel accurately diagnoses, diagnoses our, our condition, but the gospel also provides the prognosis or the sure remedy of our condition. And the angel mentions it here. He says, worship him. That's the remedy. The remedy to mankind's condition is to come back to God, to worship him. And Jesus said the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Amen. This last call, proclamation of the gospel given by this angel, may be carried out by the 144,000, that remnant, 144,000 set aside for God's purpose with the mark, the name of God on their foreheads as they go throughout the earth proclaiming the gospel. But the fact is today that God is still, God has been issuing last calls for a long time. That close call, for some of you may have been that last call. Some people, oh, I had a close call. Maybe it was your last call. God is trying to tell you something. It may have been your last call. You never know. It's time to come to Christ while there's still time to come. In verse 8, we have another proclamation as we continue through. This proclamation has to do with Babylon. Verse 8 says, and another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And many times in the Bible, and not in the Bible, but in, in Revelation, I should say in particular, in the book of Revelation, God will give us a sort of a panoramic view, and then later on in the book of Revelation, he'll give us the details. We have a case of that here. In verse 8, there's a proclamation made about Babylon, but the details of Babylon's fall is not seen until Revelation chapter 16. And so I'm going to, Hold my thunder on Babylon. Uh, Come back when we're in Revelation 16. Amen. We'll talk more about it. But suffice to say that the Babylon that is mentioned here is a mirror reflection of the Babylon uh, of ancient times. In fact, Babylon, a little history about Babylon. Babylon was founded by a God-defying man by the name of Nimrod. Uh, The reference is up on on the screen there. And it, it developed into a, a, a powerful Gentile nation. But it was a nation full of pride and idolatry. And many of you have heard of the Babylonian kingdom. And God used even the Babylonian kingdom to discipline Israel in the Babylonian captivity when Israel was carried off into Babylonian captivity, as well as the Assyrian captivity. But um, Babylon uh, was a, a place of great pride and great idolatry. In fact, in, in uh, uh, Scripture here tells us that one of the reasons why she had fallen uh, here in verse 8 
It says that she has made all nations, the latter part, she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon was known for fornication and for its pride and all. Jeremiah spoke against the kingdom of Babylon in his day and his declaration or indictment, if you will, of Babylon in that day really is a reflection on Babylon that will exist during the latter part of the, or during the tribulation period, I should say. Uh, For instance, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51 verse 7 said, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. So this Babylon we know has worldwide influence. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. So who is Babylon? Come back to Revelation chapter 16, amen? When we're in Revelation chapter 16. And uh, we will look a little bit closer there. But uh, it also represents, Babylon also represents a, um, uh, the world system as well. So some people say we were talking about a world system. But scripture says in Revelation 16, it seems, appears that he's speaking of a place or a nation that has fallen. And the whole world is grieving at this time. So we'll get into that in Revelation chapter 16. But I want to finish chapter 14. Amen. Verses 9 to 11, we move on here. We find here a third angel, and the angel declares in verse 9, the Bible says, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall be, uh, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. It's a strong, sober warning here. You say, well, wow, that's really hardcore. Well, for one thing, number one, the church has been raptured. We've talked about that uh, many times before. The church has been raptured at this point, you know, not here on the earth. The Antichrist has come to power. That seven-year period of tribulation begins and all of this. This is the latter part of the seven-year tribulation period. And the devil's going to demand, as we saw in chapter 13, that people have a mark in order to buy and sell or, or function in society have a mark on their forehead or on their hand. When you take this mark, it's not going to be like, well, I think it's okay, I don't know. You're going to know. In order to take the mark, you have to literally be a worshiper of the devil. In order to take this mark, you have to defy God, and you have to reject Jesus Christ. So it's not going to be like, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. That's why the angel here warns anyone who takes this mark will be rejected by God. British theologian, I think his last name is pronounced, his first name is Robert Govitt, I believe, said this in relationship to this passage. And I quote, he said, after the resurrection, sleep belongs neither to the lost nor to the saved. The saved will not need it for the body of weakness is shaken off and the lost may not enjoy it. How strange the sinner's Infatuation that after all this solemn warning of the eternity of hell torments, 
he will still go on coolly provoking God to cut him down and cast him into the fire, close quote. You see, liberal theologians today and those who scoff say that there is no hell. But they need to go back and read this passage because hell is a real place. And they're cast into this place for how long? Forever and ever. I don't care if you have the Greek, Hebrew, whatever. (laughs) Forever and ever is forever and ever. Hell is a real place. It's a reality. In verses 12 to 13, we find here, John speaks of two reasons for the patience of the believers during the tribulation period. Another two reasons for their patience. And he says here in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, the word of God, and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, then that they may rest from their labors and their works Follow them. In other words, he's saying, you know, here's the patience. What? The fact that death has been conquered. Death has been conquered. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. Oh, I know there's sometimes pain, but the the gain outweighs the pain. We mourn, the Bible says, because of death, but not as those who have no hope. Amen. For me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. That's the reason for our patience. Another reason for our patience, not only that death is defeated, but that we have everlasting rest and reward. He says in their rest, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Paul exhorts us in light of the very fact that we have over, Christ has overcome death and we overcome death through faith in him. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What you do in Jesus' name is never in vain. Now, what you do in your name is a stain. I don't know how to, I'm just trying to rhyme, amen? <laughs> what you do in Jesus' name is never in vain. So be steadfast, immovable. Always, not sometimes, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. This is our patience in Christ. The reason why we have patience, we've overcome death and we have everlasting rest and reward in him. In verses 14 to 20, here we have a judgment taking place. And this is not the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 21. But let us... Look at it here, verses 14 to 20, and look at verses 14 to 16 here, because Christ is reaping here. Let us read and find out what's going on. He says in verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice. To him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, 
For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud, this is Jesus sitting on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, you say, oh, this is the, this is the, the harvest, you know. The harvest, the, the, you know, the, 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 the fields are ripening for harvest, Jesus said, you know. Uh, you know the harvest is plentiful, you know, labors are few. No, different harvest. This is the harvest of judgment. The earth is ripe now for judgment. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter uh, 13. If you will turn there with me, read along with me the words of our Lord and Savior, who spoke about this very time that we're reading about here in Revelation. Matthew 13, verse uh, 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went, excuse me, into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Jesus had given, talked about, given a parable about the tares of the field and all. And they, they, Jesus, break it down to us. And he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. Isn't that what we're talking about in Revelation? And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. He's talking about the age of man. Man's rule on the earth. The son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend in those who practice lawlessness, sin, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Not a pleasant place. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. So Jesus is speaking about this very scene that we're looking at here in Revelation. Him on the cloud and then he sticks his sickle in and he begins to reap. He is reaping. This is a reaping of judgment upon the earth. And notice how complete that reaping is in verse 17, back in Revelation 14. The Bible says, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, another proclamation, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle to the other angels saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Not just the clusters of grapes, but the clusters, that the, 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 the beginning growth, if you will, uh, of, of the grapes. Even he is reaping those as well, all the tares. This speaks of a thorough cleansing, if you will, by Jesus Christ. That no seed that Satan has planted will not be harvested. He will harvest all of that. No rock left unturned. His judgment would be thorough. Even to the clusters. 
Verse 19 says, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. What is this all about? Well, for one thing, we find here the inspiration for the battle hymn of the Republic. Amen. The song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. The end of mankind's glory and the reign of Satan is being depicted here in these verses. Ezekiel speaks of such a time because in this depiction, the blood flowing and all of that speaks of a great war that will take place. A war like the world has never seen before. Ezekiel talked about it in Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 8 to 16. The prophet Ezekiel talked about the fact that this war would be so great that it would take seven years to rid the world of all the weapons that take part in this war. Ezekiel went on to say that it would take seven months just to bury all the dead. The Bible tells us here that blood will flow so much in abundance because of this great slaughter that it will rise to two feet as high as a horse's bridle. The scripture says for 1,600 furlongs. What is that? 180 miles. It'd be a slaughter never before seen on the face of the earth as the world, the Antichrist, and all the wicked forces of the world come against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Bible says this battle will be fought in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat literally means Yahweh judges. You see the references there in Joel chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 14. It's also called the plain of Megiddo or Armageddon. Revelation 16, verse 16. This is the battle that everybody kind of alludes to in the world. Oh, Armageddon, Armageddon. Oh, you ain't seen Armageddon yet. A horrific time. Well, with the time I have left, and it's going to get real close... (laughs) Uh, so we've gone a little bit over today, but I want to share this with you. This is by way of application. A couple of points I want to leave you, things I want to leave with you that come to mind. And that is, first, I think one of the lessons here is that we should learn from the 144,000 in verse 4. The Bible says that wherever Jesus was, that's where they were. They followed Jesus, and wherever he was, that's where they were. What a great lesson and testimony for us. To be wherever the Lord is. See, the problem with following the Lord is the Lord likes to take me places I don't want to go. Amen. He he likes to take you places your flesh is totally 
you know, defiant against. He wants to take you back up the stairs after you had an argument with your wife to apologize. You don't want to go there, but you need to go if you're going to follow Jesus. He wants, to, he wants you to follow him to, to, to embrace and love people who don't look like you. He wants you to follow him to a place of forgiveness when you want to hate. To follow the lamb is costly. And today it seems that many want to follow Christ. They want to embrace his grace, but without any cost. I want to love Jesus, and yet we remain selective about who we love. But cost says, love your enemies. I want to sing to Jesus. Oh, I love that when they sing that song. I love to come to church and sing. But cost says, worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh, I want to serve him. But cost says, obey him because I can serve Jesus and still be disobedient. Serving it in my gifting and my talents and still have a heart in rebellion against God. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was executed by the Nazis during World War II because he knew there was a cost associated with following Jesus. He said this, it's a little long, but it's worth repeating. He said, and I quote, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is Grace, because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of Christ. Close quote. As we follow the lamb, we become the incarnation of Jesus to others. As we follow the lamb, we become the incarnation of Christ to our families, to our fellow students, to our fellow employees, to the world. You know, wait a minute, I don't know about that. Didn't Jesus say that when he said, you are the light of the world? We are the incarnation of his love and his grace and his mercy. But we must follow him. And in following him, we become fruitful and we experience the fullness of life that Jesus died to give us. Hey, I've come that you might have life more abundantly. Did he not say that? But the cost is high. It requires my death and your death. It is the essence the intrinsic nature of discipleship. We cannot say we're his disciple and not be willing to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer also said, when Christ calls a man or a woman for that matter, 
he bids him or her to come and die. Amen. That is discipleship. 144,000 were able to follow and be where Jesus was because they were willing to, to die, to pay the cost. It's only at the end of oneself where life truly begins. Jesus said, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses it for my sake will find it. Amen. Here's the second thing that comes to my mind by way of application, and that is the whole idea about last call. Last call. Don't wait until the last call. A lot of people who have wasted their lives, and God has been gracious, and he's still calling, and they're still holding out. Don't wait until the last call. Because the last call might be too late. There's a story, actually it's kind of a fable of a man who made an unusual agreement with death. He told the grim reaper that he would willingly accompany him when it came time to die, but only on one condition. That death would send a messenger well in advance to warn him. Amen. Pretty good deal, right? The agreement was made. Weeks turned into months and months into years. Then one bitter winter evening, as the man sat alone thinking about all his material possessions, death suddenly entered the room and tapped him on the shoulder. Excuse me. The man was startled and cried out in despair. You're here so soon without warning. I thought we had an agreement. And death replied, I've more than kept my part. I've sent you many messengers. Look at yourself in the mirror and you'll see some of them. And the man complied. Death whispered. Notice your hair. Once it was full and black. And now it is thin and white. Look at the way you tilt your head to listen to my voice. Because you can barely hear. And observe how close you must get to the mirror. <laughs> in order to see yourself clearly. Observe these things. Yes, I have sent you many messengers through the years. I've kept my part. It's too bad you didn't keep yours. Sorry you're not ready, but the time has come to leave. What messengers or messengers has the Lord been sending you lately? The time is coming for all of us to leave. Don't wait until the last call. The Bible tells us that behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Are you ready? To meet the Lord. That's the real question we all have to answer. Okay, you can breathe now. I mean, wow. Revelation chapter 14 is like taking a bungee jump over the Royal Gorge in Colorado. 
But don't relax too much because Pastor Al will resume on our next episode with a Bible talk titled, The Finality of Divine Wrath. You've been listening to the weekly podcast from the pulpit of Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs, where Al Pittman serves as senior pastor. In this message, we've continued our survey in the book of Revelation. Would you let a friend know about this podcast? We hope you'll subscribe to the message and keep current with our weekly teachings from the church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. If you want access to the full archive of teachings from Calvary Worship Center, click in at cwccs.org and look under media. That is cwccs.org. Stay in touch weekly for the updated podcast right here with the teachings of Pastor Al Pittman. Next time we move to Revelation chapter 15. Thanks for joining us. This podcast has been presented by Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs.